The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Hey, it's Tony Macia with the Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger by going to thecharlotteledger.com. Today's podcast is part of a special series we're doing in which we interview winners of the Charlotte Ledger's 40 Over 40 Awards. The recipients are people ages 40 and up who are making a big difference in the Charlotte area, people who saw a need and took action. You can find out more at ledger40over40.com. The host of today's podcast is Steve Dunn, and his day job, he's a mediator who offers dispute resolution services through the Charlotte office of Miles Mediation and Arbitration. Enjoy. Welcome to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. I'm Steve Dunn, and I'm joined today by Glenda Bernhardt, CEO of Freedom School Partners, an organization that promotes the long-term success of children by preventing summer learning loss through igniting a passion for reading and a love of learning. Welcome, Glenda. Thanks for having me. Summer learning loss. I don't know what it is, but I was a kid and I went to school and I vividly recall over the summer, I, I considered the summer to be a wonderful time because it was a break and I enjoyed it and I did all sorts of fun things other than go to school. But I, re- I remember going back to school each year in the fall and there was this period of time at the beginning of the year where it was sort of like you're kind of like catching back up. Like you spent weeks sort of going back over the things that you kind of had already learned. And is that the sort of thing that we're talking about when we talk about summer learning loss. That is the sort of thing that we're talking about. And we are also talking about the achievement gap that exists between under-resourced children and families and families that have more income and more access to resources. Everyone, to your point, experiences summer learning loss. Teachers tend to spend nine to 12 weeks of reteaching material from the previous year. And there's a lot of research about what happens in the summer for children that don't have access to learning. And learning is broad, right? Learning might mean books. Learning might mean a camp where you're getting some intellectual stimulation. You may not even realize it. But if you don't have access to that learning, children can lose two and a half to three months of learning, specifically reading and math skills over the summer. And that loss is cumulative year over year. And that is why out of school time is actually the largest contributing factor to the achievement gap. It's really remarkable. uh, You just said a couple of things I didn't really know. One is that teachers spend nine to 12 weeks. I, I knew that it was some period of time, but it's been a while since I was a kid in school and I didn't realize that it was quite that long. Um, And I wonder, as we talk about summer learning loss, why the academic calendar is the way that it is. And what I've always heard, just as a kid, I remember being told, like, this is something to do with, like, farming (laughs) in olden times. You know, you needed to have the summer off to, like, work on the farm. Is is that why we have such a long break in the summer in, in a lot of parts of the country? That is why we do have such a large break. Um, Think about daylight savings. We're still debating this now, right? There are reasons that things happen with our calendar that are actually based on a different type of society that we no longer live in. But when folks try to make changes, there are new reasons why these things exist. People 
lose their minds at thinking about the possibility that school might start earlier in August, because what does that mean for vacation? Or what does that mean for summer camp? Or what does that mean for other things? And today, really important, what does that mean for teachers and breaks that they need and support that they need? So there are some schools, specifically K-8 schools here in Charlotte, that do operate on a year-round schedule. Uh, Back when Project Lift was in place, if that's a reference that makes sense to folks that are listening, a lot of those were put in place as year-round school calendar systems to try to prevent some of the summer learning loss. But it is difficult to make shifts. And right now, actually, the state of North Carolina has law in place about when school can start, public school can start. And so you've just seen some stuff in the news about districts going against that or not and potential consequences. And reactions have primarily come from parents. But right now, there is a legislative barrier to making the summer break shorter. I recall some years ago, there were, it seemed like there was a little bit of an impetus toward year-round school. And I recall that the objections were around camps and vacations. There was a little bit of a, a sense of uh, wanting kids to all have the same breaks. There was some concern that if, if you might have two different kids in the same family or that were friends that wouldn't be off. I think the idea was for kids to be in school for three or four weeks and then maybe off for a week or something like that and do that year round. At the time, I recall thinking it made a heck of a lot of sense. Like it seemed like it was a really good idea. And it seemed like there would be a lot of a lot to speak for it, even in terms of these non-school activities like vacations. It seemed like there would it might be nice if everybody wasn't trying to go on vacation at exactly the same time. Definitely want to ask you about the work that you do, which is based around the academic calendar that we have. But I wonder what you think about year-round school, if you think it would be just better from a policy and educational standpoint. I think the honest answer to that question is it depends. I do think that there are some additional factors that need to be taken into consideration, again, as it relates to our systems of education and our supporting systems, specifically for vulnerable families, in order for us to make that type of a shift and have it work. Because yes, what happens in the classroom matters, but also what happens outside of the classroom matters and whether or not we have government, nonprofit systems, additional resources that would be available to support a different type of a schedule and a different type of a calendar. And today we don't. There are in what support systems do exist are are based on the calendar that we have, right? And that includes Freedom School Partners, right? So a lot of what you do is based around supporting students in their education during the summer. Tell me about your programs and, and you know how, how you do it. Sure. Our core program is a six-week literacy and enrichment-focused program that serves children in grades kindergarten through eighth grade. It's available at no cost to families, and it centers on literacy because reading is at the heart of many things. Reading is at the heart of being able to do deeper learning as you get older in school, outside of school, etc. Reading books literally opens doors to opportunity for children and families. So we're focused on literacy, but the, what makes Freedom School different from some of the other programs, wonderful programs, my partners that are here in Charlotte, is that we're focused on reading engagement. We're looking to help our scholars build um, a love of reading and a love of learning. The curriculum and the books that we use are culturally diverse and culturally responsive. 
and also rooted in social-emotional learning concepts. So our curriculum follows themes about making a difference. We want our children, our scholars, we call them, to come out of our program having learned about themselves, about other characters, historical figures, narratives that um, are familiar and represent their own cultural and historical backgrounds and the communities they live in. And we also want to call it windows and mirrors. Our curriculum has windows and mirrors, mirrors to see themselves and windows to learn about others. And we also want them to learn how to believe in themselves and the possibilities that exist for their futures. Everything we do is about access and with the hope of creating educational equity here in our community. So how do we do it? We provide transportation, we provide meals and snacks in partnership with Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools and the National Summer Feeding Program that the federal government supports. And we offer this program at no cost to families. So that's essential. We want to remove as many barriers as possible to facilitate as much participation as possible in our program. This coming summer, we're hoping to serve at least 700 children at 12 different sites around the community. So that's important as well. We are celebrating our 20th anniversary this year of offering the Freedom School program here in Charlotte. The model of how we've done that over time and how we've grown looked one way, candidly, before COVID. It still looks that way, and we will honor kind of what we call our legacy partnerships and how we work with churches and synagogues and other community-serving organizations in Charlotte to provide our program uh, in neighborhoods, in schools, and in communities where partnerships exist year-round. And also, we are developing so that we can follow community need because demographically and geographically, Charlotte has changed and it will continue to change. And we are working to make sure that we're positioned to see where gaps are, where there are children who are not being served, specifically in the summer, and that we are able to move and go to those places to serve those children, to provide that access. Again, a unique thing about Freedom School is the K-8 piece. There are a number of wonderful programs in the community. We hear frequently about third grade reading level. You know, that is something that you're nodding. People who are listening right now are nodding. We know about the connectivity between reading proficiency by the end of third grade and what that means related to high school graduation rates, related to future opportunity. We can get into that more if you'd like. But there are a lot of programs in Charlotte that are available to elementary school kids. It gets sparse when you start looking at what's available to middle school children. And we're not the only program for that broader age range. But one of the reasons families end up finding us or being referred to us is because we strive to be a single solution for families with children of multiple age ranges. So they can say, oh, great, I have an eighth grader and a fourth grader and a kindergartner, or I'm looking after you know, my nieces and nephews this summer and we're kind of across the board. We want to be a single solution that can serve an entire family and provide them with what they need as that relates to basic needs, the food, the transportation, and also as it relates to their learning needs. Does everybody who needs to know about you know about you? Absolutely not. <laughs> Lots more people need to know about us and invest in the children that we serve. How do you reach 
the people who need to know? So I've been in my role as CEO of Freedom School Partners since January 15th of 2020. We're a young nonprofit in the landscape of nonprofits here in this community. I mentioned 20 years of Freedom School this summer. We will be 24 as an organization this fall. So I'm the second leader. My predecessor, Mary Nell McPherson, um, started this organization. She grew it with love and attention. And really, it was organic growth that happened starting with faith community connections, although we are not a faith-based program. You know, that's where there's a lot of great work happening within the faith community here in Charlotte, just as it relates to folks who want to make a difference and get out and serve children and serve families and see what they can do. So so we kind of grew organically over time. So there is knowledge about us in that faith space. We're active all over the community, not not localized to any particular part of the community. I love to talk about what we do because I think it really matters. We have great corporate partners. We have great foundation partners. So there are definitely pockets of the community that are well-versed in what we do. You obviously have a passion for the work, and I wonder how you came to it. Were you involved in this type of work before? So I'm a lifetime nonprofit professional. That is kind of in my guts. That's where I've spent my work life. That's looked a lot of different ways. You know, I I worked for many years within the Jewish community. I worked for multiple years on college campuses, focused on youth. I did some nonprofit fundraising and development work. The reason I came to this role at this time was that my prior role was actually the executive director of Temple Israel here in Charlotte which is one of the partners for the Shalom Park Freedom School site. So I knew about Freedom School. I had had the opportunity to read at Harambe, which is a pep rally basically that we do every morning at every one of our sites where we invite guest readers to come and join us. It's a great way for folks to learn about what we do and who we serve and why we do it. So I'd read at Harambe and left that experience each time feeling so full, full of joy and love and hope. And and so when I was looking for what's next at that time, and this role came across my desk, I said, oh, I, I have to explore that. And upon doing so, there were just many, many reasons that it felt like this was the best next move for me personally, and also for my family, and for what I was hoping to do next here in Charlotte. As somebody who's been in nonprofits for a long time, you kind of know the ins and outs of that, you know, like good things and sometimes the bad things about being a founder and, you know, following a founder and all that. You, you can walk in and, say, and anticipate that. But then along comes COVID out of nowhere and uh, hits us in the spring. You're a summer program. Yeah. So what, do you, what did you do? Was it in person in 2020? So it was, but not in the way that the program should exist. And the reason for that is in order for us to successfully operate an in-person program, we need space, we need facilities. And if you'll recall, if you put your time machine hat on at that time, things were closed. Schools were closed. Churches and synagogues were closed. Government buildings were closed. So just getting access to space was impossible. And people were scared. Remember, We serve vulnerable populations in general, and we still didn't know what this was. 
You know, vaccines weren't even discussed at this point in time yet. So there were real significant health concerns and fears just about being together. And this pandemic has disproportionately impacted the population that we serve, specifically related to health, first and foremost, and many other risk factors. So operating our program in classroom style was not what we did. Uh, What we did instead was develop really a one-time reactionary response to that particular moment where we literally set up tents and parking lots across the community because our goal was to get educational materials and essential need items into the hands of families. So we were out handing out books. We created enrichment activity kits that had instructions within the kits. And we also did YouTube videos and we were out just passing out stuff. We were also passing out food. We were passing out Clorox wipes and diapers and the other items that had flown off of shelves and weren't available. So that's what we did in 2020. And then in 2021, we were able to come back and offer our program in a smaller scale because we were still, again, pre-vaccination. So we, we were doing it with distancing. And also we had to limit some of our activities because we wanted to prioritize the health and safety of the children that we serve. So last year, 2022, my third summer as CEO was really my first opportunity to experience the totality of the program that we offer, which was very cool and very strange all at the same time. I'm interested in the curriculum. It is described as an integrated reading curriculum. And you alluded to this a little bit. I gather that it's it's about it's it's about reading because reading is so fundamental to all learning. You you have, you have to read to learn in all the classes that you take in school, right? But it's also about culture and citizenship and engagement. And I wonder if you could just speak to that and how the project of becoming a person in full relates to uh, success in school. Yes. So the integrated reading curriculum is the core of, of our program, and it's what takes up the mornings of our day. We actually partner with the Children's Defense Fund, which is a national child advocacy organization specifically related to the curriculum and the book selections itself. So that is our partner with the curriculum and the Children's Defense Fund, CDF, really is focused on ensuring specifically that black and brown children and also children in poverty get exposed to authors, to stories, to books, and to ideas that potentially they're not having a chance to engage with during the school year proper. So our curriculum is six weeks, as I mentioned, and follows this theme of I can make a difference. And so it really starts small and gets larger as we go through each week. So it's I can make a difference in myself is week one, in my family is week two, my community is week three, my country is week four, the world is week five, and then we focus on Hope, Education, and Action in week six. So our books, as we move through the time, and they are also um, age appropriate. I mentioned we serve kindergarten through eighth grade. Our, we break into three groups, kindergarten through second, third through fifth, and sixth through eighth. 
So these thematic elements of the curriculum hold true regardless of level of scholars and age of scholars. But we've got different book selections and different types of activities and also different learning standards that we're covering depending on what age group we're talking about. Um, and so they move through. And, you know, one of the cheers at Harambe that we do every day is there's no school like Freedom School. This is not summer school. We're not sitting, you know, in theater style desks, you know, looking at a board, writing things. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but this is summer. We want learning to be fun. So our scholars are reading, they're writing, they're drawing, they're acting, they're rapping, they're dancing. Most of the curriculum is is executed in a way that's incredibly interactive and engaging. There's group work, individual work. There's cooperative activities that are part of each day because we're showing scholars, again, how they can read and learn and grow independently and how they exist as part of a community, whether that community is their class, their family, their neighborhood, their school, broader than that. And we also want them to have the tools so that they know how to resolve conflict. They know how to share and cooperate, that they feel comfortable asking a teacher for help. These are all things that we're doing in this integrated reading curriculum over the course of our program. Well, it sounds wonderful. And conflict uh, resolution is near and dear to my heart. So thank you for doing that. I mean, these are the types of just having the ability to ask for help or to know how to ask for help or to practice just what to say can just open such an important door and make such a difference. So I think it's wonderful what you're doing. What's the best way for people to find out more about your organization? I'm, I'm going to assume that there are listeners who may have ideas for people who could benefit from participating in the program. I would like to think that there are listeners who might decide that yours is an organization that's worth supporting in other ways. So a great place to start is our website, freedomschoolpartners.org. There's a lot of wonderful information there about who we are, what we do, who we serve, where we serve, why it matters, how it makes a difference. And also, we're actually in the first year of a new strategic plan. So we've got some pretty bold goals about how we're going to do this more, do it better, do it more broadly. So there's some information about that on our website. We're pretty active on socials. So if folks are Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, those are the best places to keep up with us on a regular basis. And, you know, we actually have a wonderful event on April 25th at Triple C Barrel Room called Spring into Summer. It's, it's something that we do every year. And it's a chance for folks to learn about what's going on and also how they can be engaged because yes, we are currently registering scholars for our 2023 summer program. You can learn about how to do that on our website as well. And we're in the process of pulling together all of the resources to make that possible. So much of what you do is about community. You go out into the community and you work with scholars to think about their community. We are here today as part of the community of the Charlotte Ledger, an organization that is, is, is you talk about being new, you're a very new organization, but one that does have a community and is part of a community and is largely based around the city of Charlotte. And I wonder, first of all, 
what your own history is with Charlotte, sort of how long you've been here and, and what you've observed about this town. So I've been in Charlotte about 13 and a half years. I am married to a native Charlottean, and that's why we're here. Um, grandparents are a wonderful thing to have in your life. So we moved here in 2009. This is the longest I personally have lived in any location my entire life by more than double, which is really weird now that I think about that. But we moved here with the intention of calling Charlotte home for the long haul. And that's a really great thing. So that's how I got here. I've got three children who are students at Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. So we are definitely very committed to this community and its future. And part of what makes my job exciting every day is that I think Charlotte right now is a really exciting place to be. There's a lot going on. There's issues. There's challenges. There's no shortage of that, of course. But I do think that one result of the pandemic that we've just all experienced together is that there's a renewed focus on some of the underlying more systemic issues that our community has. And there's a lot of energy about how to collaborate across sectors, within and across sectors, to really do something about it. I mean, anytime you talk about Charlotte, people mention Chetty and economic mobility and social opportunity and all, all those things. And those things are true. And also, there's a lot of exciting stuff happening because of the, the light that that shown on some things and what the pandemic laid bare. And now through my work, I do have the benefit of, of having conversations with folks in the nonprofit community, in the corporate community, in the private foundation space, in the government sector as well, separately and together. And people are digging in. And you said something earlier, specifically as it relates to the pandemic, the issues that are here now didn't start during that time. They were here before that. They're worse now. And there are no quick fixes. So my hope for Charlotte is that all of these folks that are now saying, wow, we really need to get work together to do something about this, are willing to stay the course. I think that historically, Charlotte has sometimes been focused on task forces and folks want to move on from task forces after a relatively short amount of time. And for all of the good work that's happening now to really take hold, we're going to need folks to be willing to focus, to celebrate small wins, and to know that small wins don't compound into larger success points for much longer periods of time. Right. Yeah, I think it's I think it's fascinating what you describe as what the pandemic laid bare, what what it showed us. I, I had this experience myself, and I, I think there's something about the phrases "underserved communities" and un, "under-resourced scholars" that can be abstract and impersonal and easy not to think very hard about in more specificity than just to think like, yeah, some people have it harder than others, you know, that's, you know, life, you know, what are you going to do until the pandemic comes along? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, well, 
everybody's got to go to school by Zoom. Oh, hey, guess what? A large segment of our population doesn't have access to the internet. A large section of our population doesn't have a device with which to participate in video conferencing for school. Oh, that's what it means to be under-resourced, right? And to appreciate now the things that you described that you're doing in terms of providing transportation and food. <laughs> the way the basics add up is something that I think, we've, I think we've really learned a lot about. That, I'm so glad that you just brought that back because that, I spend a lot of time standing on tables <laughs> shouting about that, right? People say, well, what's going on? You know, the... The end of grade reading levels are abysmal. What is the school system doing about it? Or, you know, college and career readiness is at a crisis point. Again, th these things are true. And also, I've been working with some really wonderful, dedicated humans who represent our public school system and a lot of supporting organizations that are still today working hard to find children. Find them, children who disappeared during these last several years because in addition to not having a device or appropriate internet, these are children in families of folks that we learned are essential workers. So you also forget about learning. There's a safety factor. There's older children literally watching, caring for younger siblings, ensuring that there's food in front of them and that there's lights on, that they're not alone. So so yeah, it's really important to to think about education and all that matters. But basic needs, essential needs, really has has gotten up there. And in some cases, especially older students, have just had to find other ways to engage with life. And we've not given up on them. There are multiple organizations in this community who are still working very hard to find pathways back, pathways back that will lead to pathways forward. But essential needs are a critical component of the work that we do. They're not supplemental. They're not on the outside. If children are hungry, they can't learn. If children are worried or embarrassed because of their really old shoes, they're distracted. So these are things, again, within the sector that I'm a part of. These are all, we talk about serving the whole child. When we serve the whole child, I mean the whole child. Well, you have had a uh, career in nonprofits, a number of different experiences. And I wonder what what comes to mind as the the best advice you ever got or your favorite piece of advice to give to others. I think advice that I'm still trying to sort through for myself today is really about the idea of having it all. You know, I am a career-focused woman and wife and mother who came of age in the 90s when, you know, amplified all over the place was women can have it all. Women can do it all. And I think advice I wish I had gotten was how to think about that. I can have it all, but I can't have it all at the same time. And I think that's been a really hard lesson for me 
I'm really bad at saying no in every aspect of my life. And it has gotten me some wonderful opportunities. And also it's gotten me into some hot water. And I also care deeply about my marriage and my children and how I'm behaving and showing up as a mother and as a neighbor and as a friend and as a volunteer in the community. And I really am just beginning to realize that I can't show up at 110% in all of those facets of myself at the same time and have any level, I'm not even going to say balance because I think that's a farce of wellness. So I think that that's advice I would pass on is life has stages and phases and it's hopefully long. So I absolutely plan to get to the end of my life whenever that is and be like, man, I had it all. But I think that that having it all will look different at different phases of my life. Well, Glenda Bernhardt, thank you so much for the work that you do, and particularly for spending time with me today on the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is produced by Lindsay Banks. You can find out more about The Charlotte Ledger at thecharlotteledger.com. And you can find out more about our 40 Over 40 awards at ledger40over40.com. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Queen City